Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help me to preach. Help me to preach. Help me to preach in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, we are bombarded with bad news. Just this past week, I took a look at some of these headlines from articles from the Birmingham News. 15-year-old boy arrested in high school shooting threat. Man accused of shooting and burning body. Centerpoint man accused of inducing 10 kids to make porn. One seriously hurt in shootout at East Birmingham store. Decatur doctor convicted of harassing female patients. And these headlines do not even include the numerous articles that have been written over the last several days about the Brett Kavanaugh Senate judicial hearings. We are bombarded with bad news. And so this morning, if you come to this place and you're overwhelmed with the bad news and in search of some good news, I want you to know that you've come to the right place. Because the church has the greatest good news on the planet. It is with deep joy and delight that I tell you that today we start a brand new sermon series on the gospel of Mark. The series is simply entitled The Gospel. For you might know well that the word gospel in Greek is euangelion. It means good news, joyous tidings. And in Mark's version of the gospel, it is an action-packed thriller. There is suspense, there is intrigue, there is life-changing drama in this gospel. So this morning I invite you to take a copy of God's word. Turn to the introduction of this gospel, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 1, let's begin at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside, all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt wrapped around his waist. He ate locust and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. A voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the spirit sent him into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. 
he being Jesus, was with the wild animals and angels attended him. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. In the years following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the Romans still ruled the land. In the year 49 AD, Claudius was the Roman Caesar, and he issued this decree, evicting all Jews and all Christians out of the capital city of Rome. The church was scattered all throughout the world. And that edict survived about five years. For five years later, in 54 AD, Claudius died. And as he died, so did his decree. His son took his place. His son was a man by the name of Nero. And at first, Nero proved to be a better Caesar than his old man. For starters, he invited the Jews and the Christians to come back into the city of Rome. Nero made some decisions that brought about some financial prosperity for the empire and established some stability all throughout the land. But apparently the power and the popularity went to his head because after his first decade of leadership in uh, 64 AD, there was a ferocious fire, a devastating fire that ran all through the city of Rome. Now the word on the street was that Nero started that fire. Because he wanted to build himself a bigger palace. And initially that plan was meeting some resistance. So it was believed that Nero was the one that gave the order to start the fire which torched the current palace. And also leveled much of the city of Rome. When these rumors in the marketplace got too intense, Nero needed a scapegoat. So he turned to the Christian church. After all, he was able to send out a press release that said those Christians are anti-Caesar. They are anti-government. They are anti-Roman culture. And it's those Christians that set this city on fire. It's the Christians that started this. And that sparked enormous persecution against the church. So that in Rome and throughout the entire Roman Empire, Christians suffered greatly under heavy taxation just because they were followers of Jesus. They were targeted so that they lost their jobs, lost their possessions, lost their family, lost their lives. Some of the Christian children were kidnapped under the cover of night. Many adults were abducted and thrown into prison and eventually those adult Christians were thrown into the Colosseum with the roaring lions. Because the Romans were a bloodthirsty culture, they loved it when they could gather in the Colosseum and see individual humans being devoured and ripped to shreds by tigers and lions. And those Christians were thrown in there to their own death. In fact, Nero was so vile towards the church that later in his reign, he even speared some of those Christians put them on a pole, lit them like a human torch to illuminate the royal gardens at night. There were many in the church in the mid-60s of the first century that said persecution is too intense. It is too dangerous for me to be a follower of Christ. And so you can well imagine that more than a few people 
began to shrink back in their faith. Not as prominent, not as popular, not as boisterous, not as vocal. They began to shrink back in the faith and some of them even said, I'm gonna throw in the towel. Friend, I wanna tell you that the purpose of persecution is to silence the voice. And the adversary will do whatever he needs to do to silence the voice of the church. Now, I agree with John Piper. John Piper says that in our day, when it comes to persecution, we in America, we live in the Disneyland of the world. We don't really suffer that much persecution, but we do suffer some because the purpose of persecution is to silence the voice. So if the adversary can just use peer pressure, if he can usually uh, use just a little bit of pressure against you to silence your voice, then mission accomplished. But there are a lot of places in the world where Christians stand up for the Lord and they say, I will not be silent. And their lives are laying on the line and they're taken from them simply because they love Jesus. In the mid-60s of the first century, that was going on on a, on a regular basis, on a repeated basis. Christians were losing their lives because of their faith in Christ. This was causing some to shrink back, to quit, to throw in the towel. So at the same time, in the mid-60s of the first century, God's Spirit moved upon the man named Mark to write his story. Now, the scripture says elsewhere that Mark is known as John Mark. He is the cousin of Barnabas. He was the travel companion, at least partway on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. It is believed that Mark is the first of the four gospels written. And like every gospel and every book of the New Testament, the author always has apostolic connection. What I mean by that is that the author always has an eyewitness account, either the author himself or the one who's giving him the information. And this is critically important for us to understand that every book in the New Testament has an eyewitness account of the resurrected Christ. In fact, that's why it's in our canon. That's why it's in the New Testament is because there is apostolic connection Our faith is not built on some fancy fable. Our faith is built on fact. The fact is that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive and we have some eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Christ with their very eyes. Therefore, their testimony must be trusted. Their testimony is true. And so every book of the New Testament, all the gospels, the letters, every book of the New Testament bears apostolic connection. So Mark is the first gospel that's written. You think to yourself, Matthew and John, they were two of the 12 original disciples. They saw firsthand the resurrected Christ. Luke was a doctor by trade, and he traveled with the apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. And Paul was one who witnessed the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. By the second century AD, there are numerous reliable sources that tell us that Mark got his information from the Apostle Peter, the magnanimous leader of the bunch, the vocal, outgoing leader of the disciples. He's the one that told Mark the story. And so Mark says, I write on a good record. I write on the authority of the accountability of the eyewitness of the Apostle Peter. Mark writes this gospel for the purpose of clearly identifying Jesus. 
because he just has a holy hunch that if Christians know with certainty the identity of Jesus, they will be willing to lay their lives on the line for the one that died for them. If the church ever becomes fuzzy and foggy as to the identity of Jesus, then we may shrink back and we may throw in the towel and we may be easily convinced to quit. But if you have a group of believers, if you have a faith family, if you have the church that is certain about the identity of Jesus, who he is and what he did, if we know who Jesus is and we know that he died on the cross for us and we are certain that on the third day he was raised from the dead and he's ascended into the heavens and he's going to come back one day and rescue the church. If we are certain about the identity of Jesus, we will be willing to lay our lives on the line for the one who died for us. For you cannot dissuade us. You cannot persuade us any other way. We are convinced that Jesus is alive. So the purpose of the gospel of Mark is to encourage the church. What was needed in the first century is needed in the 21st century. The church today needs to be encouraged. The church today needs to be certain as to the identity of Jesus because we have bad news that's bombarding us in every direction and much of it is leveled against the church. Some of it leveled against the church trying to dissuade us and trying to discourage us yet we need to be a people who are not fuzzy and not fickle and not faint-hearted when it comes to the identity of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore Mark says let me write to you the gospel. His opening line is a power-packed punch of a statement. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is a power-packed statement. The beginning of the gospel. The Greek word is euangelion. It's a word that means good news, joyous tidings. This is not a word that uh, is particular to Mark. In fact, I do find it interesting that, that Mark is the only gospel writer that employs this word in his opening lines. Matthew simply says this is the genealogy of Jesus. And he gives us the pedigree of Christ, linking him all the way back to Abraham. Luke begins by engaging this man named Theophilus in conversation when he says, I, I have uh, written down a thorough account so that you can be certain of the things that you have been taught. And then John, oh, John goes all the way back to before Genesis when he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But yet of all the four gospel writers, it is only Mark who employs that term. It is only Mark who says, now listen, I am sitting down to write the gospel. This term gospel, it's not particular to Mark. In fact, it's a very common word in the first century. It was prominent and prevalent, not just in Hebrew thought, but also in Gentile culture. In the Hebrew mindset, there's an understanding of gospel and it's always accompanied with the idea that when Messiah comes, the gospel will be ushered into reality. That when Messiah comes, that uh, the king of all kings will come and when he comes, he will transform everything. So you go to a place like Isaiah chapter 40 and you find reference to this gospel. 
In Isaiah 40, verse 9, you who bring good tidings, that's the Hebrew word that would be translated in Greek, euangelion, good tidings, uh, good news. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings, that's the word again in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. Isaiah 40, verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lamb in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The idea is that when gospel comes, that when Messiah comes, he will usher in the gospel and he will be like a shepherd to the flock. I'm quite certain that this is part of the scriptural background for the stained glass window that's behind me. If you stop and think about when you look up there, that stained glass window, that's the imagery of Messiah coming. And when he comes, he ushers in the gospel. He ushers in the good news, the joyous tidings, for he is like a shepherd that holds his sheep close to his heart. This word gospel is not just in Jewish thought. It was also in pagan Gentile culture. In 9 BC, there's an inscription in Rome that's dedicated to a Roman Caesar. And the inscription says in 9 BC to a Roman Caesar to the birthday of the God of the world, the beginning of the gospel. Now in those days, it was believed that Caesar was God appointed. And many would even say that the Caesar was deity, was divine himself. And so many people attributed to Caesar divine status. And so in that inscription, in 9 BC, there's this inscription in Rome that says, this is to the birthday of the God of the world, the beginning of the gospel. Even in a Gentile mentality, there's the idea that when the gospel comes, it will be accompanied by a great king. And when a great king comes, he will change everything. He will impact everything. He will impact the entire world. So this was in Jewish thought. It was also in Gentile thought. And Mark comes along, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he says, let me tell you, this is the beginning of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus. For he is the anointed one. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And with the coming of Jesus, everything is affected. With the coming of Jesus, everything changes. With the coming of Jesus, he will establish God's rule and God's reign both now and forevermore. This is a gospel about King Jesus. Now, once again, Jesus was a common name in the first century. And Mark doesn't want anybody to be confused on the Jesus that he's talking about. So he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He gives two titles. The first title is Christ. and The second title is the Son of God. These two titles are tremendously important to Mark. Because there will be two confessions that Mark will hang his entire gospel upon. The first confession will be given midway in the gospel, Mark chapter 8. The second confession will come at the end of the gospel, Mark chapter 15. In Mark chapter 8, 
This first confession will be found on the lips of the Jewish man named Peter. In Mark chapter 15, the second confession will be found on the lips of the Roman centurion who's overlooking the crucifixion of Jesus. In the first confession, Jesus engages the disciples in conversation. Who do people say that I am? They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist reincarnated. Others say you're Elijah. Still others say that you're one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And of course, it's the loudmouth apostle named Peter who steps up. And what does he say? He makes a bold declaration, an honest confession. He says, you are the Christ. It's upon this confession that Mark hangs his gospel. I've told you before, I'll tell you numerous times again, that Christ is not the last name of Jesus as if he was born to Mr. and Mrs. Christ. You don't find the phone number of Jesus by going to the Bethlehem yellow pages and looking under the seas and you got Caldwell and Chandler and then Christ. Oh, that must be his home address and that must be his phone number. No, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. In fact, it's not a name of Jesus. It's a title of Jesus. This is Mark's way of saying this is the gospel of King Jesus. He is the Christ. The word Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah. He's the long awaited king of the universe. This is not just a national king. This is a global king. This is a cosmic king. The arrival of this gospel is accompanied by the arrival of King Jesus. He is Christ, but he's also the son of God. At the very end of the gospel in Mark chapter 15, it's the Roman centurion who overlooks the crucifixion of Jesus. And at the end of his life, as he's gasping his last breath, he looks up and he says of Jesus, surely this man was the son of God. Not a son of God, not one of many sons of God. It's the definite article that's there in our opening line of verse one. It's also the definite article that's there in Matthew, in, in Mark chapter 15. It is the son of God. It is the son of God. Mark says this confession, I hang my gospel because this is the confession that comes not just from Jews, but also from Gentiles because Jesus is the cosmic king. He is the glorious king. He's not just king of a particular nation. He is king of the entire ethnic world. He is king of every nation. He is king of every people group. There'll be every tribe, every every nation, every uh, kindred and every tongue will declare Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God. Mark is saying this is the gospel of who? Jesus. Which Jesus? The one who is Christ, the son of God. You can't mistake who Mark is talking about. He's talking specifically about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He then continues by giving us some quotations of Old Testament prophets. The main prophet is Isaiah, but there's also a line or two from Malachi in his quotation. And Mark does not begin his gospel rendering in a Bethlehem stable He doesn't begin by giving us the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Father Abraham. No, keep in mind who he's writing to. He's writing to Gentile Christians facing persecution, living in the mid-60s of the first century in and around Rome. So he speaks to them about the royal entourage 
when a king comes to town. They knew the pomp and circumstance of royalty. They understood it. They saw it on a daily basis. They knew how the government worked. They knew how Caesar um, paraded around. They, they knew that, that before Caesar ever went anywhere, there was always a forerunner. There was always somebody that went ahead of Caesar to prepare the way. And the job of that forerunner might be to build a bridge so that Caesar could get across it. It might be to remove an obstacle. It could be to make a, a rough place smooth so that uh, he could kind of grease the tracks for the upcoming Caesar. When Mark writes his gospel, he says, let me tell you guys about the forerunner. Because you all know pomp and circumstance. You know how government works. You know how Caesars make their way around. Well, I'm talking about King Jesus, who is the Caesar of all Caesars. I'm talking about the one who's King of Kings and Lord of Lords, King Jesus. So let me begin just by telling you about the forerunner. He identifies that forerunner as John the Baptist. There are a lot of stories that Mark could have told us about John the Baptist. He could have uh, told us about the origin of John the Baptist. You may recall that John the Baptist's parents were Zacharias and Elizabeth. They were both old and well advanced in years when Elizabeth became pregnant. The, the fact that John was even born is a minor miracle uh, because Elizabeth uh, was well beyond childbearing years and yet God permitted uh, her to get pregnant with Zachariah's boy and then to produce that bouncing baby boy, John the Baptist. I guess Mark could have told us about John's origin, but he doesn't. I guess that Mark could have told us something about the anointing of John, even in utero. Do you remember this story? Uh, that when Elizabeth is probably beginning her third trimester, it becomes evident that Mary um, is with child. And she comes to her cousin's house, Elizabeth, and, and Mary says, the, the spirit of the Lord has overshadowed me and what's inside of me is, 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 is God in the flesh. And the scripture tells us that, that it's John the Baptist that begins to flip and flop, splish and splash in the embryonic fluid of uh, Elizabeth's womb. And it's almost as if he's sitting there going, yeah, hey, hey, that's the Christ. That's him. He's the Christ, the son of God. I mean, you can imagine he's jumping all around and flipping and flopping in this prenatal state that even before he comes out of the womb, he acknowledges that Jesus, who's not out of the womb yet, he's still in Mother Mary, that even there, that's Jesus. That's royalty. He is the Christ, the son of God. Oh, my friends, Mark could have told us something about the anointing of John the Baptist, but he doesn't. He could have told us something about the fact that John the Baptist is the last prophet. Do you realize there was 400 years of divine silence between Malachi and the New Testament? For 400 years, nobody stood up and said, thus saith the Lord. For 400 years, that's longer than America has been a nation. For 400 years, God did not raise up another prophet. Malachi was the last prophet to speak. And for 400 years, a divine gag order until John the Baptist. Until John the Baptist comes as the forerunner. Now, certainly Mark could have told us something about that, right? I mean, he could have told us something about the origin of, uh, of John the Baptist, or he could have told us something um, about the anointing of John the Baptist. He could have told us something about the fact that he's the last prophet, that John the Baptist. But Mark doesn't say any of that. No, in his description of this forerunner, 
He only tells us something about his words and his wacky wardrobe. That's it. He says that this one named John the Baptist, he was dressed in clothing of camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist. And he went around eating locusts and wild honey. You think to yourself, well, I guess that's good information, but why are you telling me that, Mark? I mean, what, what's the purpose? I mean, is it just to tell us that his, you know, his clothing wasn't fashionable, it was just functional? I mean, is he just trying to tell us that his food uh, wasn't really enjoyable, it was just edible? I mean, what's the reason? Why tell us what he looks like and how he's dressed and, and what he eats? I'll tell you the reason why. It's because John the Baptist looks an awful lot like Elijah. Elijah, that Old Testament prophet, He wore camel's hair clothing. He had a leather belt around his waist. That's what he ate. He was a redneck from the sticks. John the Baptist was a redneck from the sticks. And what Mark is telling us is this is the forerunner. For the Old Testament tells us that I will send one before Messiah. I will send one in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And Mark says, voila, there he is. It's, it's John the Baptist. He is the one who is, is the one that will make the rough places smooth. He will show us and tell us how we can receive the gospel of King Jesus. So listen to his words. The one who comes after me, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. The untying of somebody's sandals wasn't even a job for the lowest of servants in the first century. And what John the Baptist is saying is, it's, I'm not even up to the lowest servant of Jesus. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. I'm so far beneath that. I, I couldn't even reach up and do that. Because the one who comes after me is far greater than me. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We call John the Baptist simply because he was the baptizer. And baptism wasn't especially unique to John. I mean, he's not the only one who ever did baptism. Um, In the nation of Israel, there were times when there were ceremonial washings. When an adult Gentile was converted to Judaism, that adult Gentile would go through a ceremonial washing and it would look quite a bit like what you and I would call a baptism. It was a washing. It was a, a cleansing But what is particular to John the Baptist is the reason for the baptism. See, he's not telling people to become Jewish. He's not telling people even to be religious. He's really telling people to be retro-religious. He's saying, listen, if you're going to accept this gospel of this great king, this king who is king of both Jew and Gentile, if you're going to accept this gospel, then you got to have repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. And this baptism is symbolic of being washed and cleansed from your sin. Only symbolic, not literal, only symbolic because I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He'll baptize you with fire. He will purify you from the inside out. I can only symbolically baptize you, but he will in reality baptize you because the way you get to him and the way you accept his gospel is through repentance, the forgiveness of sin. 
The only way for your dirty sin to get off of your credit, the only way for that dirty filth to get off of your life is through repentance. And what is repentance? Yes, it does mean to do a 180, but it also means to trust and to turn. What John the Baptist is saying is that if you want to repent, you've got to trust Jesus to be king of the cosmos and you've got to turn from your wicked sin. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, if that message doesn't sound very clear to you, apparently it was abundantly clear in the first century because Mark tells us that the entire Galilean region went out to the Jordan River. Everybody went. Everybody went there to be baptized by John. In verse five, everybody goes. People say that's hyperbole. Not everybody. Okay, then a bunch of people, a load of people, a lot of individuals. They go out and they're baptized. Why? Because they say, we want this gospel. We want this cosmic king to come into our life. And if you're telling us that the only way that we can accept him is through the forgiveness of our sins, then we want to be washed thoroughly and completely. In verse nine, Jesus comes to be baptized. And my question is, why does Jesus come? He, he doesn't have any sin to be cleansed. He doesn't need to repent of anything. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, right? So why does Jesus come? It clearly says in verse nine that Jesus came to be baptized by John. Now, Mark doesn't tell us the conversation that goes on. There's another gospel writer that does because Mark has the same question or John has the same question that I have. And when Jesus came to the banks of the Jordan River, it's John the Baptist who says, why are you wanting me to baptize you? You need to baptize me. So the question is, why was Jesus baptized? And the answer is because the one identifies himself with the many. The one identifies himself with the many. He will do this at the end of the gospel ministry. When Jesus will die on the cross, the one will represent the many who will accept him as Savior and Lord. And this idea that Jesus is the one that represents many is not just something at the end of the gospel, but it's something at the beginning of the gospel. Because here at the beginning of the gospel, in the baptism of Jesus, Jesus saying, I'm not a sinner, but I identify with sinners. I'm not guilty, but I identify with the guilty. I'm not needy, but I identify with the needy. And Jesus came to identify with us, the one for the many. And so this idea that Jesus comes, the one for the many, bookends the entire gospel ministry. It begins at the baptism of Jesus. It finds its completion at the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm identifying with you for your sin will be placed upon me and my life will be given unto you. Whoa, that is amazing gospel news, right? That's good news. Now, apparently you already knew that because you didn't hoop, holler and shout. I thought you might get a little excited because that makes me pretty excited to realize that Jesus says, I will identify with you in your sinful condition, not just at the cross, but also on the banks of the Jordan River at the beginning and at the end in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the one that identifies with the many. As he comes up out of the water, the heavens are ripped open and the voice of God speaks and the spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove. It's a beautiful Trinitarian picture. I realize what you already know, that the word Trinity is nowhere found in sacred script. 
I know you can look from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you will find the portrait of the Trinity sprinkled all throughout the Bible. This is one of the best places to see the Trinity on display. It is God the Father who speaks. It's God the Son who is representing us, baptized for us. And it is God the Holy Spirit that descends upon him like a dove. And God the Father speaks a word of affirmation. He says in this moment what he had already said years before. The father says to the son, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. The father is quoting what he'd already spoken in Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. He puts those two statements together and he says in this divine moment, um, in the first uh, century, When he looks upon Jesus, the father says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Jesus knows from the beginning of his ministry, he has daddy's approval. There are some who have erroneously said that it's at this moment that Jesus became son of God. And anyone who thinks that or says that, I say to them, look back at the text. God the Father does not say to Jesus, you have now become my son, or you will be my son. He uses the present tense when he says, you are my son. In the Greek language, verbs carry uh, the notion of how action takes place. And in the present tense in the Greek language, uh, present action is a continuous action. It has its roots in the past. It's presently going on right now. It has the promise it will continue to the future. What God the Father is saying to God the Son is, you always have been my son. You are my son. You forever will be my son. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. I think that this echoed in the chambers of the mind and heart of Christ all throughout his ministry because he knew he had the heavenly father's approval. And I think this is how Jesus can handle the difficulty and how he can handle the disappointment and how he can handle the struggle and strife. I think this is how Jesus handled it because he knows, hey, my dad is pleased with me. Now, most of us growing up, we want our father's approval. We want our father to be pleased with us. And so that also translates in our relationship to our heavenly father. We desperately want our heavenly daddy to approve us. And here at the very start of the gospel ministry, Jesus hears those faithful words. You are my son whom I love. I am pleased with you. I think this is how Jesus handles the God forsakenness on the cross. You remember as he's dangling On the cross between heaven and hell, Jesus says, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And I think what what he clings to, what he holds on to is reality, that you are my son whom I love and I'm pleased with you. Friend, let me tell you, if you are in Christ, if you are adopted into God's family, you can handle all the persecution. You can handle all the struggle and strife. You can handle all the temptation and trials. Why? Because you've heard from your heavenly daddy, you are my beloved child and I love you. And you know that if God loves you, then you can handle anything. And if God loves you, he'll take care of you. And if God loves you, he will see you to and through whatever you're facing. You are my beloved son, he says to Jesus. With you, I'm well pleased. No sooner the Holy Spirit rested upon Jesus that the text tells us that same spirit sent Jesus into the wilderness. That word sent is a weak translation. The Greek word is actually ekbalo, 
Um, Ballo means to throw. We get the English word ball from it. Uh, Ek means out of. So the Spirit threw Jesus out into the wilderness. It's, it's a very forceful term. It, it's that the Spirit thrust Jesus, sent him, threw him, cast him into the wilderness. All throughout the Bible, the desert or the wilderness is a place of tempting and, uh, and, and trials and trouble. And Mark just says that the devil tempted Jesus. It's pretty concise, isn't it? Mark doesn't give us the elaborate details like Matthew. He doesn't give us the elaborate details like Luke. Matthew and Luke will tell us the actual temptations and the way Jesus handled it, not Mark. Mark just says, let me just give you the concise, action-packed thriller. Let me just tell you what happened. Look, the Spirit of God thrust and threw Jesus into the desert. And Jesus was tempted. He was there for 40 days. The people of God in Israel's history were in the desert for 40 years. Jesus will be there for 40 days. And Mark just says he was with the wild animals. And the angels attended him. Much ink has been spilt trying to describe what are the wild animals. What does it mean for Mark to tell us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was out in the desert being tempted by the devil and he was with the wild animals? What does that mean? At the very least, it must mean this. Remember the original audience. Gentile Christians in the mid-60s of the first century living in Rome suffering persecution, and many of them have been thrown into the Colosseum where they were devoured by wild animals. When the original audience read that, that Jesus was victorious even with the wild animals, they say to themselves, if Jesus was victorious, I can be victorious. If Jesus conquered the wild animals, then I can conquer the wild animals. If Jesus gets the last word in his life, then he will have the last word in my life. Those wild animals, they may tear me to shreds in the Colosseum, but they, the worst they can do is kill me because I am in Christ. I am with God. And if God gave victory to Jesus over the wild animals, he'll give victory to me in the wild animals. Friends, whatever wild animals must mean, it must mean whatever you face in trial, and trouble and temptation. God overcame that in Christ so God will help you overcome it by the power of Christ. You can have the victory in Jesus our Lord. And then it says that angels attended him. What does that mean? It means that God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus was never by himself. Jesus was never alone. The angels attended him. And just as the angels attended him, so angels will attend us. Now, I don't have the time to get into a theological discussion about angels, but suffice it to say this. Angels are real. Angels are a creation of God. And if you'll allow me to use a basketball analogy, I'm not convinced um, that you have a specific guardian angel because I don't think the angels play man-to-man. I think they play zone defense. Okay, so I'm not convinced that you have a particular guardian angel, but I am convinced that the angels 
attend us and they help us and they wage war for us. In fact, right now in this worship service, if God could just peel back our eyes and allow us to see the celestial, if he just allowed us to see what was going on in the spiritual realm, we would see angels waging war right now on our behalf in this worship service. And God will always get the victory. He got the victory in the desert. He'll get the victory today. Why? Because Jesus is the cosmic king. He is the Christ. He is the son of God. He came to issue a brand new reign and rule in your heart and in mine and in this world, both now and forevermore. He came to establish a relentless obedience in his life and in your life. And in Christ, you have the victory. So I'm reminded what the scripture writer tells us. I am pressed, but not crushed. I am perplexed, but not in despair. I am persecuted, but not abandoned. I am struck down, but not destroyed. I'm reminded of what the hymn writer says. There's victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me before I knew him and all my love is doomed. He plunged me to victory beneath that cleansing flood. To King Jesus, I give my allegiance. To King Jesus, I give my life. To King Jesus, I give my death. To King Jesus, I give my past. To King Jesus, I give my present. To King Jesus, I give my future. To King Jesus, I give my problems. To King Jesus, I give my success. To King Jesus, I give my setbacks. To King Jesus, I give my disease. To King Jesus, I give my wallet. To King Jesus, I give my marriage. To King Jesus, I give my family. To King Jesus, I give all my hopes. To King Jesus, I give my dreams. To King Jesus, I give the persecution that might come against me. To King Jesus, I give it. Why? Because he's King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He ushers in the gospel, that gospel of good news that changes everything. And in him, there is relentless obedience. So in me, there must be relentless obedience. And friends, this is just the beginning of the gospel. We got 16 chapters to walk through. This is just chapter one. This is just wetting the appetite. But let's be clear. This is the gospel. And who's the gospel tied to? Jesus. What Jesus are we mentioning? The one who is Christ and the son of God. This is his gospel. May he rule and reign in your heart, both now and forevermore. If you're here today and you've never embraced the reign of King Jesus, today I want you to know he's here and he invites you to come. We're going to sing a song. I'm going to be standing here. Some other ministers will be here. When the first note is struck, you come, take us by the hand and say, Pastor, I need, I need this Jesus in my life. Maybe you are here and you're a believer. But like the people of the first century, you're suffering heartache and setback, maybe persecution, and the load is heavy. And you think to yourself, I don't know if I can make it another week. I'm bombarded with so much bad news. Christian, let me tell you, 
you can make it another week in spite of all the bad news. Because I came today to give you some good news. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord of your life. He's Lord of your situation. He's Lord of your scenario. And he will help you through it. So maybe, Christian, you need to come and just pray. Just fall on your face before the Lord. And regardless, today, we lay our lives on the line for the one who laid his life on the line for us. His name, King Jesus. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit's power that you will do work in this place. That you, Lord, will do the heavy lifting. Some of us need to come and accept you as Savior and Lord. Some of us need to come and cast all of our cares upon you. Help us to do that today. To walk out victorious in Jesus' name. Amen.